We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela, Dei Mater Alma, Ad Semper Virgo, Felix Welcome everybody, it's Steve with Sense for Daily. I'm coming at you with a guest from the land down under, Michael Casey, O-C-S-O. He's been a monk at Tarawara, Wara, Tarawara Abbey, Australia, since 1960. After completing a degree in scripture at Leuven, uh, he received his doctorate from Melbourne College of Divinity for a study of desire for God in the writings of Bernard of Clairvaux. For the past decades, he's been engaged in exploring different aspects of monastic spirituality, writing, and giving conferences throughout the English-speaking monastic world. And I wanted to, I heard about Father Abernathy talking about him in one of his lectures, so I wanted to bring Michael Casey on. Uh, thank you for this. Uh, it's it's night. It's midnight here where I'm at. Uh, I guess it's morning or afternoon where you're at. And uh, anyways, welcome. Thank you for coming on. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Well, in the middle of the afternoon on a hot, <laughs> hot summer's day. And when he asked me about this, uh, about doing the time, he told me the time ago, we'll make it work. <laughs> so, no, appreciate you, appreciate you uh, carving out some time in your day for it. So, you give lectures on these topics. He's got time to, now, if you guys are unfamiliar with it, here's his website or a website with the books that he has 70, uh, Sevenfold Tools for Good Living, Balaam's Donkey, Road to Eternal Life, uh, A Thirst for God. Conundium, uh, The Art of Winning Souls, Come and See, Monk's Road, Living the House of God, The Parables and Sentences. You see Sisterian Spirituality, Monastics, Monastic uh, Sermons, etc. One book that's not on there that I heard about was Strangers to the City. And being that we're not just, it's, holiness is not for just clerics, monks, and priests. It's for everybody. And this is from the Reflections of the Beliefs and Values of the Rule of St. Benedict. He quotes Cassian a lot in this, among others. So how can people like myself and others be strangers to the city? What are some lectures or points that you give to uh, the layman out there for things, or anybody? Well, let me just say first about the book itself is that I believe about what I know about, and what I know about is monastic. Um, I'm not inclined to be prescriptive about how other people should live, how married people should live, how nuns should live, how Eskimos or Inuit should live, but I write about what my conscience tells me, what my uh, understanding of monastic life is, and it's a question if the hat fits, we'll wear it. If it suits you, if you find in this some uh, truth, well, that's uh, a discovery for you. And I think it's interesting that uh, 
so long as I, I keep to what I know, there's some likelihood of there being at least some elements of truth in what I write. And I think, in, in a way, Thomas Merton was a bit like that, that when he wrote about monastic life, people were uh, raved about it. Um, because it was somebody speaking from experience, somebody speaking not from the head, but from the heart. And I think that's what's important about my writing, that, uh, you know, there are lots of zones of human life about which I know little. Uh, but if I write about what I know about, there is some possibility that there might be something of truth in it. You mentioned that in the intro, uh, exactly that. I thought that was good to tell everyone. I said, I'm not, a, never been married, never this, so I can't speak for a husband, wife, you know, kids, etc., which is good. But a lot of these points you brought up, uh, a layman can embrace, like asceticism, for example. Can you, uh, what is that? And what are some examples of that? Well, let, let me just first go back to, to your, your earlier question about how can uh, people who are not uh, in monastic life uh, be a stranger to the city? I use the title um, because you have to have some sort of catchy type title for a book. Yeah. But it emphasizes something which is makes a monk a little bit exotic. Huh? He's somebody who doesn't conform to the pattern of living that is common in the surrounding culture. But the principle is, and, and I think this is a principle that needs to be stated clearly, because we live in, a lay, in an age where many people define themselves by what they reject, define themselves by what they turn their backs on. And I think to become a stranger to the city means that Italy that you uh, are so attached to an alternative system of life, an alternative system of values, that you lose a bit of interest in what concerns many people. Now let me give an example. If a little child is playing with an electrical outlet, and finding it very interesting, what we do is offer them a chocolate biscuit or something, and they suddenly become much more interested in the chocolate than in the electrical plug. And it's a bit like that also. And Sophie the Great says that no detachment is genuine unless it is preceded by attachment. It's what being drawn to something, it's being attracted to something that makes one turn one's back on, on other things. And it's not out of distaste or disdain for what we uh, put aside, but it's out of being driven by a great desire for, for, for something different. And uh, I think this is very important. It's the, in the Gospels, as the, uh, the parable of the treasure in the field. The kingdom of heaven is like someone who finds a treasure in the field and goes off, buries the treasure, goes off, sells everything that they have and acquires that field. It doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like somebody who sells everything and starts looking for treasure. No, attachment comes first. 
and and that's the key thing. And when we talk about strangers being a stranger to the city, uh, I'm actually paraphrasing St. Benedict, who says by his actions to make himself a stranger to the world. Uh, what we're really talking about is somebody who takes seriously gospel values. And anyone who takes gospel values seriously, uh, their life will be characterised by what we might call uh, a gospel distinctiveness. They're going to be a bit different, not because they like to be different, uh, but because they follow the gospel, they follow Christ, they forgive their enemies, they're not acquisitive, they, they live somewhat disciplined lives and so forth. They're following the gospel, that's the attachment that is important. Uh, the detachment may be more visible and more spectacular in a sense because it seems to many people a little bit exotic, but what's important is the inner attachment to, to, to Christ and to the values that Christ proclaimed. So what would you say to somebody that fell, made a massive conversion, reversion, and they're wanting to live the life, live the gospel, and they're just going all out with this massive zeal, sometimes maybe an unchecked zeal. What is something first you tell them and maybe a mentor to say, all right, this is a good way to start out. Usually like back off, pump the brakes. How would you tell them to start off to be, like I said, a stranger in the city? What would, some quick, what would be something that you could tell them, all right, let's start with this first? Well, a lot depends on, 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 on the individual, of course. Um, some people are naturally endowed with what we might call a, a sort of a sense of discernment, a sort of, of prudence. Other people uh, have that gift list. But the thing is that what we need to do is to understand something of the process of conversion, that it starts with an experience of some sort, an experience that doesn't really connect with what's going on around us, an experience that doesn't seem even to be have its roots in our own uh, past experience, but something which is quite, uh, quite disturbing. And that's the experience, and, but we have to let that experience grow. And how it grows is first of all by giving some light to our, to our thinking, to, to, our, to our, our way of viewing the world and evaluating the world. And showing us, as it were, a different path, or if not a different path, um, at least showing us that there should be a different path somewhere around here if I can, if I can find it. And then it expects of us to give our assent to walking this very distinctive path. There's a kind of uniqueness in everybody's life that a, a unique path that they're called to, to follow. They may be inspired by the example of others, they may be helped by the advice of others, but ultimately they have to be guided by their own sense of conscience, which, which uh, melds them with 
uh, an external set of values which becomes progressively clear if they give themselves to uh, understanding Christ and understanding the Gospels. Saint Athanasius said rather clearly that uh, uh, the scriptures are meant to be a mirror in which we see ourselves. And so it's through the scriptures that we progressively uh, attain some sort of knowledge of ourselves and some sort of uh, awareness of the distinctive path that we, each one of us is called to follow. Is that where it comes with the uh, "Why are you here?" and making a making the break? Is that where that's coming? Is that where the, you're you're talking about? Oh, I didn't catch the question. I'm sorry. Is that basically where you come up with the like almost like "Why are you here?" the opening line, uh, like Benedict would ask, and uh, kind of making a break from society. I'm still not catching it. Uh, so not coming through. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you, but the words seem... Uh, Jumbled. Are you using an expression, a slang expression? Of? Oh, is this where the uh, the term, uh, the, is a Benedictine motto of uh, why are you here, what they would first ask the monk? And, uh, well, maybe why are you here? Yeah, yeah then making okay. the break. Yeah, well, I think it's, it's it's a good question. Why are you here? The question that, uh, that Benedict asks uh, candidates, that St. Bernard asked himself. And it's, it's a point that Pope Francis makes frequently. When there is a strong spiritual experience in our life, we should go, keep going back to that. Not because it remains the same, because like the memory itself, there's a certain plasticity in spiritual experience. When I go back to it today, it's with the accents of today. Not with, it's not a thing of the past that I can dust mire, but it is something that continues to speak to me, not only as it spoke to me how many years ago, but it speaks to me in my circumstances today. That's why Pope Francis often advises people to go back to this experience of conversion or vocation or whatever you want to call it, and to try and extract from it its meaning for, for today. And, you know, the, the verse of the psalm is, is relevant here. If today you hear God's voice, harden not your hearts, that God continues to speak. And... Uh, it's this inner voice of conscience, this inner subtle prompting of the Holy Spirit that, is, uh, that needs to be our primary guide, uh, that, need to, that helps us to sound out the uh, authenticity of the options with which we are confronted. What you said reminds me of uh, the silence. Uh, I, hear, I heard someone line of uh, the uh, silence is the language of heaven. Um, you bring that up in your chapter of leisure. Is what do people not understand what le what is leisure? Because most people think it's just putting your feet up on watching TV or something. Well, uh, leisure, as we pronounce it, um, in correct English, is basically, 
uh, is basically not being under constraint, which means I'm fully alive and fully human and I'm able to do what, what I, I need to do. I'm not under constraint. When somebody is under pressure from one form or another, whether internal pressure or external pressure, they're not at leisure. But leisure is simply having the scope to be able to stop doing things and to allow oneself to be. And, um, you know, how many good ideas have come in the shower? Um, simply for some people, that's the only time they're really at leisure. They don't have anything to do. It's rather pleasant. Uh, and the kind of movement of the water encourages the kind of uh, responsiveness of thought. So it's very important that we have uh, times in our life when, uh, when nothing seems to be uh, happening. Many, many years in 1977, on my way to somewhere else, I retreat to a, a group of poor Clare nuns in Papua New Guinea, northern Papua New Guinea. We were talking about the, the, the difficulty of finding uh, a contemplative language which uh, would speak to the local people. This is right up in the north, uh, Papua, Papua New Guinea. And eventually we were saying, what sort of word do they have in their vocabulary that would give some idea of what contemplation is? And it came up in, in, in Pigeon with Sindhanatan, which expanded means sit down and do nothing. Now, in this culture, in a time when there was no electricity, and no internet, and no television, and no radio, Sindhanatan consisted in, in everybody at the, at the end of the day when darkness fell going and sitting around the fire and doing nothing. If somebody wanted to speak, they spoke. If somebody thought it'd be a good idea to sing, they sang. But the essential part of it was they had no other agenda. They were just simply free to allow whatever came up from their, their heart's external expression. And so this is what's very important about leisure is that it really is contemplation, the ability to put, put aside not only the uh, external pressures, but all these fake agendas that we create for ourselves of things that have to be done, things that have to be achieved and so forth. Even, I might say, trying to meditate, making that our agenda. I've got to meditate, I've got to do it this way, I've got to reach this state of consciousness. Well, you're so concerned with your own agenda, the, the things that you want to accomplish by your own efforts, that um, you're not doing nothing. And it's very hard for most people to do nothing, to simply to be, because their thoughts invade, their plans invade, their resentments invade, their grievances take over. But to sit down and do nothing is the key to contemplation.
could you uh, could you explain the uh, uh, overworking monk in Cassian's ninth conference? Well, it's just a story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but uh, there's a lot of people that probably don't know of it. I thought that was a great story. Yeah, well, it's, you have to remember that it's 18 years since I wrote this book. Okay, so uh, I, I, I just, I just, I, I thought you might have it off the top of your head, and people might like your uh, pr uh, pronunciations better than I. I, I can read it if you want. No, no, I'll, I'll summarize. It's just a story of a monk who is working very, very hard and sweating and, and feeling the burden of it, and a holy old man goes past and notices that uh, he's been driven on. He has a taskmaster. And in, uh, in a, a phrase typical of the racism of the time, he saw it as an Ethiopian, a big black demon. It was actually the devil forcing him on, saying, work harder, work harder, work harder, work harder. And uh, when the monk questioned the worker, about why he was working so hard. He said, oh, we have this job to do. In other words, he recognized that he wasn't a free man, that somebody else was constraining him. And of course, uh, the superego uh, is, is a demon that drives many people. They do things because there is a, a great deal of internal restraint that forces them even to do good things. And uh, today being the feast of St. Thomas Beckett, you might remember a line from T.S. Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral. The last temptation was the greatest treason to do the right deed for the wrong reason. And so people do all sorts of good things, not because uh, they feel drawn to do them, but they feel there's some psychological compulsion, some internalized parental voice, which is nagging them and nagging them to do this, to do it better, to do it more, uh, and so forth. And that's another thing Merton uh, said very wisely, I think, that uh, you know, the greatest enemy of the monk is the superego. Um, it's not a genuine striving after virtue but it's an internal compulsion. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, some people are attracted to monastic life uh, at the behest of the superego. It's not really uh, a vocation inspired by love, but it's really they're being driven like the overworking monk, uh, being driven by a dark force within. And like at the end of your chapter on this, is I'll say it correctly. Leisure teaches us to recognize that everything is to be done at the opportune time, as Benedict insists. We have learned to read the signs of the times as means of ensuring that our actions is called forth by the objective needs of the situation and not by our own subjective need to act. Um, I thought it was a great chapter was reading. I remember when my brother became a cleric, he told me about the book, how to read a book, and you actually quote from it. Uh, many people read a ton of books. How is reading a something that is an art that we need to get better at that maybe we don't think about as a terms of becoming holier with? 
Well, I, I think it's leisurely reading is the key to it. Um, you've just disappeared from the screen. Oh, you're fine. I just took myself off and put you you in it. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, it's, when we talk about leisurely reading, we mean that we're not doing, we're not trying to find uh, a particular answer or to finish a book or anything like that. But we're coming to a book in order to uh, in order to allow ourselves to be exposed to uh, the world of surprises, because we don't know what's on the next page. We don't know what we're going to be confronted with. And if we approach our reading in this spirit of openness, then we're going to be uh, surprised. We're going to be moved by, by what we read. It's not a question of just acquiring knowledge. We read from the heart. Uh, and, you know, I'm probably quoted in the book because I quote him often enough, the saying of Abba Pambo, a disciple came up and said, how can I be saved? And he said, well, find your heart and you'll be saved. So we read from the heart, we read from the conscience, we read from very deep down inside us. And uh, that's the important thing, I, I think, in the art of Lexio Divina. That it's not simply for knowledge, it's to make contact with the Word of God and through the written Word of God to make contact with Christ and at the same time to, uh, to be in contact with our, own, uh, with our own conscience, our own sense of selfhood. Um, Lexio Divina is not only teaches us about God, it also teaches us about ourselves. Uh, and that's why uh, it, it's a vital means of growing in, in, in spirituality. Yeah, you kind of throw speed reading under the bus, don't you? Yeah, well, speed reading is just trying to get finished, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the means I recommend to avoid it is simply to read aloud. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily at the top of your voice, but to actually enunciate the words. And this makes of reading a multimedia exercise because we're seeing the words, we're feeling the words as it were, as, as they, they go through our mouth. And uh, the words have a particular, have a particular feeling for, for each one of us. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a bit of an accident or seen somebody in an accident uh, when the medics come along, the first thing they do is they start palpating the person, feeling them all over. And the idea is that if nothing happens, that's fine. If they give a yelp, then there's something that needs attention here. And I think it's the same with our reading, that we allow the words to flow over us. Uh, and often they just flow over us quietly, just like water in the shower. But every so often one of them has a sting. One of them touches us, one of them moves us. And that's a sign that the, the, our conscience and the spirit of God have started a dialogue. Uh, we feel particularly touched. And there are lots of stories of, of people who are converted by a particular word which they've read hundreds of times before. Well, I think it's, it's all part of, uh, of 
living in, in the moment, mm -hmm. living in the context of the providence of God. And that means that um, God will in, in one way send us whatever we need to guide us on our path, not just simply in general terms, but, but for what we specifically need to learn to, for today. And I don't know how many people have told me, and it's been my own experience, that often uh, when we read something, for example, in the morning, and later in the day somebody comes to us for some help, and we suddenly discover that what we've been given in our morning reading is just for them. In other words, it, it fits their situation perfectly. And uh, it seems to me that there is a, uh, a wild world of providence uh, awaiting us whenever we open the scriptures or another suitable book. That God will speak to us, God will give us not only what we need for ourselves, but also whatever it is that we need to for, for, for other people. Uh, but there is a liveliness. The Epistle to Hebrew says the Word of God is living and active, and it certainly is. It will do a job on us if we allow it. It will change our lives and will lead us in the direction that God wants us to lead. And this is all within the providence of God. I mean, it can happen when we structure reading into our daily uh, life, but it can happen through things that appear to happen uh, accidentally, or more correctly to say, providentially. There are things which can help us to understand ourselves, understand others, and understand God better. I guess that brings into the qualities of love of Christ. You have quite a few of these qualities. Uh, is How can someone show that daily in their lives? That's the question, isn't it? <laughs> it's a question to which everyone has to find their own answer because uh, the opportunities to show love um, are, are, are manifold and, and, and they're, not, they're sometimes paradoxical. Uh, I mean, sometimes we show love by giving person room, by not crowding them. By, by holding ourselves back. We tend to think that love is simply embracing people and coming closer and closer. Well, sometimes people don't want us to come closer and that's the worst thing that we can do. <laughs> so we, we love them, we respect them by, by holding ourselves back, by, by speaking less, by pressing ourselves forward less uh, urgently. And I think that in every situation, the, the language of love is a very, very local dialect. And uh, what we do to express our love for others and to intensify our love for others is really very particular. And I think we've all known people who are what we might call compulsive do-gooders, um, who are very... Uh, fervent in, in doing things for other people and serving other people. But I, I remember a, a, a friend of mine who uh, 
who studied social work, and the level of feedback he got during his studies was, was very severe. But eventually he was told, you help people because you need to be a helper, not because they need help. Yeah. And that was dead right. Yeah. And I think we've got to always be aware of our own motivation in what we do. And that the way we show love is, 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 is by living uh, in honesty and self-knowledge, aware of ourselves and our impact on others, and of taking small steps uh, to build bridges towards others, even when that may seem uh, a little bit paradoxical. I like how you have uh, St. Bernard saying that there's uh, there could be no Mary without Martha and Lazarus, that labor, penance, and generosity of service are the indispensable buttresses to the joy of contemplation. Yeah, well, uh, variety, not only in a community context, but also uh, within one's own life is of primary importance. That if we keep trying to to live just doing one thing and, and not satisfying all our needs, well, uh, we won't last very long. I think that we have to recognise that our well-being is, uh, is built not only by, by spiritual effort, but it requires attention to the physical side of our nature and to the intellectual side of our nature and the relational side of our nature and the emotional side of our nature. That all these are components of our lives and if we try simply to be spiritual all the time, we're going to go crazy. Uh, sometimes we have to sleep, we have to eat, we have to exercise, uh, we have to look after ourselves. We have to keep our brains and our minds active. We have to ask questions and be demanding in the answers that we accept. We have to build relationships uh, in all the paradoxical particularity that they require. And we have to keep a check over our own emotions particularly. And as the Desert Fathers used to insist, particularly over the spectrum between anger and sadness uh, because many people's lives are dominated by, by anger and sadness. The most real thing for them is, are their grievances. I mean, Robert Hughes many years ago wrote a book called The Culture of Complaint uh -huh. and the danger with this kind of ethos is that grievances become the most real thing uh, in a person's lives. And so they're very sad and that doesn't last long because sadness very quickly uh, evolves into anger and anger evolves into aggression and aggression evolves into preemptive aggression. So we start being preemptively aggressive towards people simply because we feel in some way that we are not receiving all the benefits to which we are entitled. And uh, there's a lot of kind of this preemptive aggression in the world today, as you don't need me to tell you. <laughs> That's the phrase that pays was the title of that book. <laughs> Can't swing a dead cat without seeing that these days. Yeah.
How, how does somebody... sorry, I... I'm sorry. I said I can't, you can't swing a dead cat without seeing somebody complain these days. Uh, how do you? Uh, how, what's a good good way to squash that anger and sadness? I I know you rip it out of the bud, but uh, from the roots. But how's what's a good way that somebody can when they see it coming on can nip it in the bud? Well, I, I think the first thing is is to. Uh... Uh, look in a mirror and if you look at yourself in the mirror you'll see a big lump on your shoulder and that's called a head <laughs> and God gave us a head and expects us to use it and sometimes the first thing we have to do with 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 anger is to step back number one and to, to use our heads and to think through and uh, if uh, the thing uh, that we must try first of all is to, to understand why are you angry? I'm often uh, impressed by the question uh, that God asked Jonah when he was sulking under the castor oil plant. He said, is it right for you to be angry? Yes, all sorts of things are happening in the world that shouldn't happen in the world and there are people who do things that we disapprove of, but are we right to be angry? Is it producing anything? Uh, and it's not anger that is the problem, it is aggression. We feel anger, but what do we do with that anger? Well, we have to prevent it from driving us rapidly into acts of aggression. And very often, act, the acts of aggression that thoughtlessly uh, follow the feeling of anger are directed not at the cause of the anger, but at somebody else. We kick the cat uh, because we've had an unpleasant telephone experience. Well, the cat didn't do anything to us, but the cat uh, cops, the, uh, cops the result of it. And the thing about uh, aggression is that it's contagious. When I'm aggressive to another person, they become, if not aggressive back to me, then they uh, direct their aggression to somebody else. Um, so my basic solution, if you like, a solution to, to the feeling of anger is to, to think it through, to step back first of all, not to allow ourselves to be automatically driven by what we're feeling, but to step back and think it through, to ask ourselves, you know, is this something that we just have to bear with, or is this something that calls us to a particular action, uh, or is it something that just tells us we need to uh, take steps to, to cool down and to allow ourselves to reach a more rational uh, space. You wouldn't know who this is, but there's a guy, there's a Marine, a U.S. Marine, a former retired Jocko Willick. He talks about that stepping back, detaching from the situation, and then engaging to get your emotions out of there before you make any decision. Yes, I think that's, that's the way. And I noticed myself this past year using that expression, step back more often in the talks that I've been giving and, and so forth, that... Yes, in everything, to step back and, and, and use your head. God gave you a head and it's meant to be used. 
I can't stop thinking of uh, League of Their Own, the movie, when Tom Hanks gets, what's it? Use your head. That's that lump that's three feet above your, you know what? <laughs> uh, praying. Uh, somebody say like, and I, I'm, I'm speaking from a layperson, busy, busy day, things going on. God said, the scripture says pray daily or pray all the time. St. Paul, I think, says it as well. How does one go about praying? I know Cassian talks about, or is it, was it Benedict or Cassian that talked about the day of some auditorium of Intende? And you even write in here the Jesus prayer. Um, how does, does somebody just keep repeating, oh, God, come to my assistance? Does someone just keep repeating until it gets, like, I don't know, second nature? No, I, I'm a bit of an opponent of constant prayer. Um, I think it's, uh, it's more rhetoric than reality. Uh, yes, we should pray all the time, but what about sleeping? What about eating? What about cleaning my shoes? Uh, you know, the opposite way uh, of thinking is to do what we're doing. Again, Gregory the Great coined the phrase, arge quadagis, do what you're doing, to give ourselves to the present moment, to do what we're doing, to enjoy the sunshine if the sun is shining, uh, to enjoy a, a cool breeze later in the afternoon, uh, to enjoy our food, not just to eat our food, but to enjoy our food, to be grateful for our sleep, uh, to feel enlivened by, by friendship. Uh, this is what human life is all about. And, those areas of, of well-being that I mentioned before, spiritual, physical, intellectual, mental and emotional, all need to be sustained in us. Uh, if we try to, uh, to give ourselves to uh, uh, total prayer, then I think we're guilty of angelism. We're, th we're not remembering that we are only human beings. We're not angels, and that we have other needs as well. I don't know if you remember the book by Salinger, the uh, Franny and Zoe, and it's a, a couple of hippie kids who decide they want to get into this continual prayer business. And of course, the result is they they go crazy more or less. Uh, and I think that uh, you know balance and uh, and moderation are, are important in everything. Uh, neither too much or too little. That our prayer becomes part of our life, an integral part of our life. That's what's important. Uh, but uh, I don't think it will ever become the totality of our life because we, as long as we're living in the flesh. We have to eat, we have to sleep, we have to be in relationship with people and doing other things. Uh, and trying to multitask uh, just to me seems a very inferior way of uh, dealing with uh, the complexity of life. To concentrate on the one thing that we're doing and to do it as well as we can, uh, even if it's eating or sleeping. Uh, to, to give ourselves to that moment and not to be constantly dividing ourselves uh, and trying to do several things at once. I guess that goes into the, uh, I don't hate to use the overquote, the GKHS from line, anything we're doing is we're doing badly. 
So it goes into prayer. You should do prayer badly. Oh, that, that, there's no other way of doing it. Um, if a person is super competent at prayer, their prayer is null and void because prayer is a relationship with God and our relationship with God is not of co-equals. We are saved, we are dependent. Uh, and religious experience, as Schleiermacher said, is the experience of absolute dependence on God. So the only way to, to, to pray is to feel yourself helpless at prayer. At prayer. Uh, that I'm not doing well. Today I'm too upset, today I'm too distracted, today I've got a cold, today I've got a, uh, a grudge. Well, well, that's fine. We go to God with these things and experience our own incompetence at prayer. And that is a superlative prayer. If we think we're pretty good at prayer, oh, I did a great job at prayer today, I'm sure God must be very pleased. <laughs> Well, um, we're living in a world of delusion. Prayer is experience our own dependence on God, uh, utter in incompetence to do anything that is uh, meaningful in the spiritual realm without the help of God. Final thing, for growth and holiness, and holiness is very important, perseverance to get there is a big key. What? How, how, explain some of that to them. Someone that's having a rough day or the dark nights hitting them, uh, how can they persevere? What's some uh, advice you should give them? Oh, I don't know. Again, it's, it, it's all, when it comes to advice, it's always very particular right. and, and, and individual. But um, I, I, I've just uh, last, uh, last year or this year, uh, written a book on 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 uh, the book of Ecclesiastes called "To Love This Earthly Life," and one of the key concepts that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes is what I call the the, the idea of mixity. That human life is necessarily a mixture of elements and there's a time for life and a time for death a time for planting a time for pulling up a time for building and so forth uh -huh. uh, that there is a moment for everything and that not everything is going to meet with my approval uh, not everything is going to correspond to to my expectations or to my uh, desires and we just have to get get into our heads that in some senses, uh, the, we have to uh, eliminate from our, from our personal philosophy any uh, uh, sense of entitlement, that I'm entitled to live a, a, a gloriously happy life with no contradictions, with no labour, with no failures, with no misdirection or anything. Uh, that's simply delusion. And what uh, Ecclesiastes keeps telling us is that it's normal for us to go through hard times. Um, and I think that some people have used the image of the seasons to, to, to show the changes that we experience in life. Yes, there is a winter and there is a spring and there is a summer and there is an autumn. And what we're called to do is to make the most of each season. 
to enjoy what we might call the, the domestic warmth of winter when the house is warm and the outside is hostile. To, to joy, enjoy those periods of life when new life seems to be uh, blossoming within us and the bold beauty of summer and the fruitfulness of autumn, that there are seasons in life and to see, make the most of, of whatever we're experiencing. And, you know, I've, I've met persons who have been diagnosed with a terminal disease and they said that the last, you know, as they were dying and fronting up to this disease, said, this is the best time of my life. I've never lived so present to the moment as I live now. And that's the thing, to love the moment, to love this moment as the only moment that I have, the only moment that has reality. I don't have to, to be burdened by the grievances that come from the past or the anxieties that beset the future. I have simply this moment. And for this moment, I'm quite happy. I'm here, I'm sitting down, I've had enough food, I've had enough rest, I'm not threatened by any enemies. Uh, why wouldn't I be happy? Brother, I appreciate your time. Uh, it's getting late here, so my mind is starting to shut down a little bit. But any final thoughts that you got that are maybe a topic that I didn't bring up that you would like to uh, uh, tell the audience? Oh, well, I, I suppose that um, because I've written a lot of books, you know, most of what I've said today is somehow contained in one or other of the books that I've written. <laughs> And my brother says, I keep writing the same thing in all the books. Not quite true, but uh, I suppose it all stems from a, a single viewpoint on life. Uh, and uh, if, you want to, uh, if you want to go deeper into some of these things, I suppose that's the place to do it, where you can do it uh, with greater intensity and greater concentration and simply listen to me ramble on here. <laughs> well, I, they're not the same. I got the uh, living in the truth and towards God, the ancient wisdom of Western prayer. And yeah, sure, there's some entanglements. There's, it's like a spider web, but it's yes. they're definitely not the same book. <laughs> okay. My brother, appreciate your time. Have a great one. And uh, yeah, thanks. thank you again for coming on. Okay, bye-bye.